This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Very good afternoon to you on this Tuesday afternoon. Keen to get your thoughts on this new agriculture visa, which could be up and running as early as next month. I wonder what your thoughts are. Is this the answer to the worker shortage in the agricultural sector? And what does it mean to you? The text is 0448922604 to be part of the conversation because some fruit and vegetable growers here in WA want a little more detail about this particular ag visa and are concerned what it might end up costing them. More details on the ag visa so far after news headlines at half past 12 today. And I do not want you to go anywhere because you are about to hear an amazing story of a mustering accident on a WA station. Lydia Ingalls fell off her horse after it was spooked by a cow that charged her. As his head came up, I must have let fell forward and our heads collided. Um, Yeah, I was knocked down. Lydia's story is not too far away. Before news headlines at half past 12, don't miss it. Six past 12 on the ABC right across Western Australia. The livestock export transport company Wellard has recorded a net profit after tax of 1.9 million US dollars, up from a $200,000 profit the previous year. It has been a challenging year for the WA-based agribusiness with one vessel, the MV Ocean Ute, in extended dry dock and then there was also the sudden temporary closure of the New Zealand live export industry after the tragic sinking and loss of life on the Gulf Livestock One. And with a downturn in cattle exports from northern Australia to Indonesia and Vietnam, Wellard shipped a lot more breeder cattle to North Asia in the 2021 financial year. John Klepek is the executive chairman of Wellard. John, how difficult has it been to get back in the black again this year? It has been a challenging year in total. The um, second half, we did have a dry dock as well on the on our largest uh, ship, the um, Ocean Drover. So that took that ship out of action for just uh, short of six weeks. But that went according to plan. That was a, a scheduled uh, dry dock. All the ships undergo dry docks uh, in a period between two and three years. So that, that was a normal maintenance. So the And look, it, it was a particularly pleasing result from that aspect because the first half, uh, we did have the challenges of the um, uh, events subsequent to the um, sinking of the Gulf Livestock 1 where the New Zealand uh, market um, was put on a temporary um, suspension which meant two ships that we had heading there had to be diverted to other work at very short notice. And we also had um, some issues with the dry dock of the um, Ocean Ute in uh, Guangzhou, uh, where we had some issues which extended that out double the time that that was allowed. So when you're operating three ships, if one ship's not available for an extended period of time, it's obviously going to have an impact. So the second half, uh, you know, to do a three and a half million and a half shows uh, the financial resilience of the business and what can occur when uh, there are no uh, adverse or unforeseen major unforeseen events. 
And uh, the other part is that is carried over into FY22. So we, um, the first couple of months of this year have been quite solid. All the ships have uh, have been chartered and uh, the forward order book heading into Christmas is uh, quite strong with only a couple of slots left. So all in all, uh, yes, very pleased uh, with the second half result and looking forward to um, be able to produce the same again for the forthcoming financial year. And which markets are providing the greatest demand for livestock? Well, that's been an interesting year on year. Um, the market has shifted uh, considerably and um, your listeners would well know of the um, uh, restocking that's going on, so I won't go there. So where we've managed to divert the ships to work, where that market, you know, the market to Indonesia and Vietnam is off roughly, you know, 30, 30 to 32% in both of those markets is into the uh, brood of cattle into um, North Asia. So that market has increased significantly for us. You know, as an example, um, uh, you know, 15 voyages out of the total of 25 went there. So, you know, we're down only 10 voyages to our traditional markets and 15 went to the um, um, service to brood of cattle market. So, and that's reflected in this year as well. So it's not a one-off blip um, that's occurred for 12, 18 months. It's, it's ongoing, expected to continue for this the rest of um, the rest of this year and uh, all of uh, pr- probably all of the calendar next year as well. As you said, uh, anyone listening to this show would appreciate the situation uh, with exports coming out of northern Australia. Already seen the market down. What did you say? Thirty to thirty-two percent fall in the number of cattle exported from northern Australian ports to Indonesia and, and Vietnam. So obviously a flow-on effect to your activity or Wellard's activity in this sector of the industry. That doesn't look like turning around, John. Is that how you're seeing it anytime soon? No. Look, there's the meat and livestock um, guys have come out with some forecasts that, you know, show um, uh, increases coming in the um, next couple of years. But our forecast or our feeling for the market is it's really FY23 that uh, and into early 24 we'll see um, substantial increases. The herd build is underway. Uh, there's calves at foot. Fast forward 18 months, they will have to go somewhere. So there will be a surge of supply that will come. It's just a matter of how long and you know exactly how long depending on the weather conditions, of course, whether, you know, the, if the grass continues there, um, you know, the um, station owners will keep the, um, keep the herd there longer. If not, they'll turn them off, uh, and that should see uh, significant increases in volumes come through. So it's, it's not an exact science, but it will come. The market will turn. The herd will, you know, get back up to around, you know, the 28 million head again in, uh, you know, by the end of 23. So uh, we're looking to volumes to rebound in that sort of time frame as well. Maybe not as as quick as MLA is forecasting. but uh, So that would be an upside if it does happen at the back end of this FY22. But uh, FY23, I think most market pundits are all saying that that will be, show volumes coming back. What impact is the pricing of Australian beef causing in these particular markets, you know, your traditional ones, Indonesia and Vietnam? Oh, well, one leads to the other. The the price is, a, is an outcome of the supply, uh, shortage of supply, the demand for uh, from the processes has stayed fairly stable, so um, they continue on uh, with with a certain demand. And look, and the demand from overseas is there uh, if the price is if the price was right, but the price is is not there because you, you've only got so many so many head of cattle to go around, and um, the price gets bid up by the market to the maximum price people are willing to pay. So one leads to the other. Supply increases, price will drop back, and. The markets are extremely price um, conscious. Um, Indonesia, uh, especially, there's no 
just passing on through the customer. You know, the, the um, government mandates what what price is there, so it works backwards from there. The feedlot has to make a margin to stay afloat. The exporter has to make something. Um, we have to stay in business, and then it flows back to, to the station. So the cattle... Um, Breeders at the moment are, are enjoying super profits, but you know we're, we've all everyone who's been in the industry knows it's a cyclical business, and um, you know it will it will switch. John, great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. John Klepek, he is the executive officer of the livestock charter vessel company Wellard. On the Country Hour, thirteen past twelve. Well, the record high cattle prices John was just telling you about have really been hogging all the limelight this year. But just quietly, lamb has also been having one of its best years on record. Yesterday, the National Trade Lamb Indicator broke through the 950 cents a kilo barrier, eclipsing the 949 cent high point recorded in 2019 and 2020. Thomas Elder Markets analyst Matt Dalgleish says the price is a good market signal for lamb. I guess it's a, a vote of confidence in the product, particularly from key overseas markets. If we look at the export flows, particularly of lamb in July, we saw some really strong numbers out of the States and unseasonally strong numbers out of the States. They're running, volumes are running about 77% higher than the July average. So that's massive. And the other big market, of course, is China for our lamb product. And they're 49% above their average for July. So, you know, really strong export demand at a time when normally we see the export volumes um, lower through winter. Yeah, absolutely massive international demand. How does the price for the Australian lamb compete with some of the price for the other lamb available around the world? Oh, we're actually quite competitive. So um, New Zealand are also fairly competitive, but they've, they've actually in the last... A month or so, seen kind of prices increasing both for for sheep meat and um, and for cattle in New Zealand, and so they're kind of you know reaching to record highs in their own right. But um, if you compare our pricing to um, you know the cost of lamb in the US, which is a really niche product, or the cost of lamb in Europe and the UK, they're, they're at a much higher base than what we're at. We, we can make lamb very cheaply and efficiently in Australia comparative to the rest of the world. We're still in a flock rebuilding phase at the moment, really coming out of sort of the last patches of drought um, in the previous few years. What's the supply available like in Australia at the moment? It is reasonably tight, and particularly when you're looking you know, for breeding stock. So, And the ratio between, say, lambs to sheep is very narrow, and that's consistent with what we gen- tend to see in, in a fairly aggressive rebuild. The, the last time we saw this type of uh, a narrowing of the spread, if you like, between sheep and lambs was back in 2010, 2011. That was also the last time we had this La Nina-type weather pattern that we had you know, a good two seasons worth, and, and that time there the flock uh, increased back to... Um, it was about 6 or 7% increase in that period as well and we're forecasting the same kind of levels of increase this year for the flock of of that kind of you know six to seven percent magnitude how far will we have to go with the flock rebuild before the prices start to even out a bit when that supply level starts to sort of reach the demand that's a curious thing because if you look at if you're focusing just on lamb slaughter luke and you go back say a decade or so ago the lamb slaughter volumes back then were like you know 16 million 17 million head sometimes 15 million head on a tighter season we're now seeing lamb volumes or the average over the last five years has been 22 and a half million head of slaughter so we're actually slaughtering and producing more lambs each season than what we were 
back a decade or so ago. So you'd suspect, you know, higher supply that would pressure price. But actually what we've seen over the last two decades is a real big growth in our export markets. For argument's sake, looking at the amount we produce in terms of you know, our production as a proportion of our exports for lamb, that's gone from something like 25% back um, two decades ago to you know, closer to 60% now. And that's just for lamb, of course, we export much more mutton as well. So what we've seen is actually we've increased the supply over the last two, two decades, but the demand has actually increased at a faster rate. And that's part of what's been driving our prices higher over the last, you know, 15, 20 years. If you look forward, the same, the same kind of view is, is moving at least to the next decade where the prospect for sheep meat globally, it's still a fairly niche product and Australia is the main supplier to the world in terms of the biggest supplier. And there's only really New Zealand as a key competitor to Australia. So the supply, even though we, we could increase the flock, the global supply is still fairly small of, of what's available for export. So that means that realistically, the, you know, we could increase supply, but if demand continues to grow like it has over the last you know, couple of decades, the prices are still going to be fairly well supported. Speaking of demand, for the last sort of quarter of this year that we're heading towards, what, what are the international trends looking like? Well, see, normally, traditionally, this time of year in, in winter, is we tend to see our low ebb of, of flows, you know, because obviously the prices tend to go higher in winter in Australia and also... Um, there's just not that supply. But as we come into the, the spring now, we're going to see a, a big rush of lambs coming through Victoria, and that generally you know, knocks about 15 to 20% off the price, which this year it might go a bit more if we have ongoing processor issues in Victoria. But you know, we are into a phase now where pricing should start to ease um, as the lambs start to you know, come through to the market. That's probably likely. To, and, and what usually happens with the volumes, obviously, um, towards the end of the year is that volumes, export volumes tend to go up. It'll be interesting to see what happens because we're already at really elevated levels. But as the price starts to ease, it'll be, it'll be really interesting to see if we can continue to kind of rise from these very high levels already. Lamb market analyst Matt Delgleish with Luke Radford. And the news, the price of lamb hit the 950 cents per kilo mark yesterday, 18 past 12. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varisgetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Great to have you along this afternoon. And Lydia Ingalls used to work on a station in Western Australia's Pilbara. A year ago, she had a bad mustering accident and almost died. Since then, Lydia has been struggling to recover from severe brain injuries. Courtney Fowler has the story. This time last year, Lydia Ingalls woke up from an induced coma. The best I can put it, describe it as it just felt like I was waking up from a a weird dream like a really weird vivid dream I've got no memory of like 45 minutes before the accident till about 10 days later as far as I knew I should have been in the bush and then all of a sudden I was just in a hospital and I was like oh this is weird Lydia fell off her horse while working on Yarry station about 1800 kilometers north of Perth but she has no memory at all of the accident where colleagues have since filled in the blanks. We were mustering as we usually do and there was a cow in the bush and she didn't want to come out. So my horse and I apparently we like just crept up to her, tried to encourage her to get out of the bush, but she didn't want to go. So she came out charging at my horse and then he turned around and went to go kick her. As his head came up, I must have let fell forward and our heads collided. Yeah, I was knocked out straight away. Um, And I just so happened to have a helicopter up above me. 
Um, and he said that I just fell like a jelly bean from the horse. I think I fell down a like a six foot kind of rocky bank. So you can just imagine what my body was kind of going through. And if I wasn't wearing a helmet, those subsequent brain blades would have, they could have been detrimental, you know. But it wasn't just a helmet that saved Lydia's life. Other station workers quickly performed CPR and first aid. The station owner flew a chopper to a neighbouring town and mine site to fetch medical assistance. Then six hours later, Lydia was put into an induced coma at South Headland Hospital before being flown into an intensive care unit in Perth. After waking up, she spent the next two months at the traumatic brain injury ward at Fiona Stanley Hospital, learning how to walk and talk again. That initial knock I got on my head led to a brain bleed right in the middle of my left side of the brain. So my whole right side was out of action at the, start, at the very start. But what I deal with daily uh, like is my fatigue and rehabbing my right side and my speech, my speech therapy, basically. Um, there's definitely days where I'm like frustrated and annoyed at the fact that um, I'm not doing the things that I used to be doing. Um, so you definitely do have to learn to be kinder on myself and allow myself the time that it takes to do certain things. That must have been really difficult. Yeah, definitely. Like when I first got home, around the three-month mark, um, I actually had a very important conversation with my physiotherapist she was the one that broke it to me she was like listen it's not going to be six months it's going to be more like 18 months before you get back to work she was like but I believe that you'll get back to work and you'll make a full recovery and she was the first one that said to me you're going to make a full recovery it actually made me cry which was good because my emotions were nowhere to be seen at um, at the start of the injury so since I gave myself time the rehab journey has it's you know looked and felt a lot better because I'm like, okay, I'm actually giving myself time, you know. At the start it's it's just crazy to think that I thought I'd be fine by now and I'm far from it. Wow, it sounds like that was a really big turning point for you. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, you totally nailed it just there. It was um it was a big turning point and um basically yeah now I can manage it all a bit better but I'm so yeah I'm, I'm glad that my physiotherapist gave me the stern talk. After leaving hospital Lydia travelled back to her family in Otago New Zealand where her mum and partner have been by her side throughout her recovery. One day she hopes to get back to working properly on a station but for now she's just enjoying the small things in life. So like when I turned 26 I was like oh god 27's next but, um, yeah, when it was my 27th birthday, I woke up and I just looked up at the hills because I've got beautiful mountains around me in New Zealand. I looked up to the hills and I just thought, oh, God, I'm happy to be here. I'm so lucky to see 27. So, um, yeah, grateful is just, I feel like that totally, like um, that word alone is, it doesn't do it justice, but that that's it. I'm, I'm grateful. Um, I'm so happy to be around my family, my friends, um, and then I've got my Pilbara family as well. Um, and, you know, technology allows me to, um, you know, I talk to them freely. You know, I'm just, I'm so thankful to be alive. But um, 
like physically I just want to prove to myself that I can be a stock woman again um but also mentally as well um I'll definitely ease myself into it but it's my goal that by next summer I'll be doing a few tricks around home here in New Zealand uh and getting myself ready for doing a master back at the station how do you think you're going to feel that first time you get back on a horse are you afraid to be honest, I, I don't know, but I don't anticipate there to be an anxiety around it because I just I don't remember the accident at all. But from what I do know, it was a complete freak accident. Like it could have happened to anybody. And I was wearing a blue helmet. So like there's there was nothing else I could have done to um change what happened. Um you know, like but you know, there could be a chance that getting on a horse um might bring back some memories and and if that's the case that'd be good (laughs) but if there's one thing that a near-death experience has taught me is that um relationships and experiences that you share with people uh, is what matters most and everything else is just a bonus so while you are in the stage of recovering just be just be grateful and be thankful that you have experiences and and relationships with people and 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 just yeah, and don't go much further than that. Just stay there. Stay there for as long as you need to and appreciate those things. And then yeah, everything else is just a bonus. Former Pilbara stockwoman Lydia Ingalls talking to Courtney Fowler about her recovery from a mustering accident on Yarry Station about seventy three kilometres northeast of Marble Bar. I bet she is thankful she was wearing a helmet. And you know what? It was only weeks before the accident that station owner Annabelle Coppin made helmets compulsory for all workers on horseback. And she says that helmet policy is just a small part of the safety plan that helped save Lydia's life. Yeah, there there could be a bit of a stereotype out there that we're all a bunch of cowboys who don't care about safety, but it's actually not the case at all. We're, We're like a big family and it's a genuine care as well. It's not just a process. It's For me more, it's a genuine care for my our, myself and my team and and our family here that we do the best we can to not hurt ourselves and also to keep it real as well. So we're trying to keep our safety program so it's real. It's not just something on paper and that everybody's kind of looking out for each other, particularly because we've got the choppers in the air. So we're sort of, as pilots too, we're always consciously checking how they're going. It's something that I've always sort of consciously checking in on people all the time. I probably talk too much on the two-way sometimes because I always like to know people are okay. But as a whole, we're, we're dotted across a, a big area of country, but uh, working pretty closely as a team in that time, yeah. I think in this situation, there probably isn't a lot that we could have done. Um, we train all our crew pretty well. Lydia was a very good rider. She, she was a good, great little stock person as well. And... She had all the training she could have. We even trained about approaching a single animal, never coming face on to an animal on their own and always working on the side of an animal. So if something happens, you can can come away. And, and the horse really did nothing wrong. He was just protecting himself. Probably one of the biggest things that we did last year was implemented everyone wearing helmets. And um, that was a pretty big move for us. Having said that, it also wasn't that bigger move in the end everybody just put their helmets on and off we went if you had asked me that a couple of years ago I probably you know because we don't have to wear helmets and I think there's a lot of other safety 
elements on a station that you need to look into too, and, it, and the helmet's just a small part of that. However, it, the situation that Lydia was in, I'm very glad that we did implement them and, and we certainly will be keeping our helmets on from now on. Is that um, something that's unusual in the industry, do you think, Annabelle? Wearing helmets? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, there's a lot of people that wear them now. I wouldn't know the percentage. The rules are at the moment is that you, sh- you should only wear them if, you- if you're riding a young horse or if you're not a competent rider. And there's lots of arguments sort of for and against them, especially about heat stroke. And, and you know, just because you wear a helmet doesn't mean that you're going to be safe. You have to be a good rider and you have to be on the right horse and you have to know what you're doing. There's all these other elements. But I think it's, from my experience now, I think it's a really good thing to put in the mix. How are you and the team going, Annabelle? Obviously, that is a traumatic event for you guys to all go through, as well as Lydia. Yeah, look, it is. Um, you know, you, we, we pulled together as a team. We talked about it a lot. But everyone was shaken by it, including myself. And we're just, we're just very thankful that she's okay and that she, and she's going to recover. And she's still with us. And we're also really thankful that she will come back to us and, and be a part of the team because she's a great team member and yeah we're really glad and we, we just wish she was here now because we're in this year. Is there any advice I guess you'd give to other pastors listening in who perhaps haven't kind of looked over their safety plan in a little while? Look it's just really important to, to have your safety program it's really helped us afterwards and before keep adding to it keep it active keep it real. Uh, look, I'm no expert in it, but I know that our plan helped us. So we'll be continuing with that. And um, also just thanks for the, for all the support from the community. And, and it, was, it was a time that, that showed that people really cared in our industry. We got a lot of messages, a lot of help from Lydia. And obviously the, the medic chopper coming in, BHP and RFDS as well, and, and all the people around that, that supported Lydia and, you know, all, all the way through that medical system is... It's a pretty amazing system and all the people that work in it um, I greatly admire and, and um, appreciate. Pastoralist Annabelle Coppin from Yarry Station with Courtney Fowler. You can read more of the story online, have a look through the photos, just search Muster Accident Yarry Station ABC and you will find it. Muster Accident Yarry Station ABC for the online article. It is... 29 to 1. Oh, this text through from Pedro too, who says, Helmets do not entirely prevent all head injury, but they reduce it immensely and prevent it enough to make it madness to go without a helmet. Wish her a bright future. Thank you for that, Pedro. You can be part of the conversation too on text 0448 922 604. 29 to 1. Jonathan Beale is here. What's making the news headlines, Jonathan? In the headlines, Belinda. WA's Premier Mark McGowan says 20 sailors aboard a cargo ship berthed in Fremantle have tested positive for COVID-19. The Ken Hu docked yesterday after more than half the 22 crew reported symptoms. Mr McGowan says his preference is to manage the crew members on board. A 47-year-old woman has been remanded in custody to serve 14 days quarantine after allegedly speeding through a police checkpoint 
checkpoint at the WA South Australian border. Yesterday morning, Brenda Elena Blazard allegedly led police on a high-speed chase while towing a caravan. She allegedly rammed a police car, tried to run over an officer and threw a jar full of petrol at another officer before trying to steal the set the fuel on fire. She appeared in the Kalgoorlie Magistrates Court today via audio link from Eucla Police Station and will remain in quarantine until September the 6th. And Perth tycoon Eugenie Zenya Svetnikova has abandoned his legal fight against attempts to extradite him to the US to face multi-million dollar fraud charges. Mr Svetnenko has been in custody since his arrest at his Perth home in December 2018 after a warrant was issued by a New York judge. He'll remain in custody while the Federal Attorney General considers the US request for him to be extradited. More news, Belinda, at one o'clock. Thank you for the update, Jonathan. 27 to 1. You're with Belinda Varischetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. This just through from Michael on text who says, Will the new ag visa allow us to import staff from Europe that are trained in operating farm equipment with a good level of speaking English, recruited for seasonal work, meaning eight to ten weeks for harvest and seeding, allowing the staff to travel when not working and, of course, spending their earned money in Australia. They can pre-quarantine in Europe and complete the quarantine on farm, also be fully vaccinated before leaving Europe. If that is all true, says Michael, it will be a perfect visa. Now, look, Michael, I think some of those details are yet to be uh, said out loud, to be explained to you. Hopefully, though, between now and the news at one, you will get a little more detail about this new ag visa that Federal Agriculture Minister David Littleproud announced yesterday, just saying sort of it's going to be up and running, possibly within the next month. And just before the news at one, off to Mouche for the results of the sheep market. Right now, though, off to the Bureau and Luke Huntington. What is the story around the Southwest Land Division? Yeah, quiet conditions today. So um, we do have a high-pressure system moving south of the state and a trough developing off the west coast. So a generally sort of um, east to northeasterly flow across most of the southern half, and it's creating uh, mostly uh, clear conditions. And uh, as we head into uh, tomorrow, um, pretty cold temperatures through the inland uh, eastern south, uh, inland southeast land division. Um, so places like inland of Esperance may get down to a uh, couple of degrees. So that, that's just the risk of fr- early morning frost about that area. So it'll be fairly light, I think. I don't think it'll be too widespread. And uh, we do have a, a weak cold front also approaching later in the day um, to affect the southwest capes. Um, so we could see some showers developing around that area um, sort of late morning um, and then getting into the afternoon as well. But the showers won't be too heavy, maybe one or two millimetres around that area. And there's just a slight chance of a shower, um, a slight chance of a thunderstorm near that coastline just as the uh, front moves through that area. Um, and that front will weaken out as we head into uh, Thursday and there is a stronger cold front moving up behind it. So that'll uh, move through uh, during Thursday morning and then push through the southern parts of the southwest land region during the afternoon period. So we could see some um, thunderstorms with that uh, south of about uh, Bustleton across to Esperance and there's also a chance of some hail associated with the cold front as well. It's got a pretty cold air mass associated with that. Um, in terms of rainfall, I don't think we'll see 
too much rainfall um, associated with it. Most of the heavier falls will be around that um, south coast, so around um, Augusta to Bremer Bay on that Thursday period with falls maybe up to 10 to 15 millimetres. And then as the front moves uh, east on Friday, most of the rainfall will be confined just to the coastline between Bremer Bay and Esperance, so they could pick up, uh, say, 10 millimetres or so. And uh, again, there's a risk of uh, thunderstorms and some hail along that um, south coast, but that will be contracting uh, eastwards uh, during the day. And then by uh, Saturday, uh, that that cold air mass will linger over the southern parts of the state. So again, there's another risk of frost frost over inland uh, southern parts of the southwest land division. So um, sort of districts such as the central wheat belt and the inland southeast coastal district could see another risk of frost. Now, you don't sound too worried about the idea of frost, but can you just spend a little more time on that, Luke, because any detail about specific areas or the timing of that is obviously um, very important at this time. Yeah, so um, I guess for tomorrow morning, um, I did mention there was a risk of frost. Um, that The main risk would be over the uh, sort of the southern goldfields and the inland parts of the southeast coastal district. So that's that covers sort of the Norseman area. Um, and so that area will probably the most likely risk of frost tomorrow. And again, it's not, it's not a really sort of a... Um, sort of a severe frost or anything. It's just a very, very light frost. So I don't think it's going to um, be too too widespread. So, um, yeah, not, not, not too severe, I don't think. All right, then. And later in the week? And then uh, for Thursday and Friday, uh, we'll have an increased amount of cloud cover and wind, so and the moisture will increase. So um, we're not going for any frost on the Thursday and Friday, but um, yeah, it's not until Saturday where that frost does return, um, and that's for the central wheat belt and for inland parts of the southeast coastal district and into the goldfields. All right, one to watch then as the week progresses. Now on to northern and eastern parts of the state. How are conditions? Yeah, over the north of the state, it's uh, mostly clear. Um, we've had some windy conditions with uh, some gusty easterly winds. So um, we've had some elevated fire dangers through parts of the Kimberley. Um, those winds will continue again tomorrow morning. So uh, we'll most likely have another uh, fire weather warning for the southwest uh, Kimberley. Um, as we head into uh, Friday, those winds will finally ease. So um, the fire dangers will decrease. And then uh, on Saturday... Um, we'll see um, generally quiet conditions uh, as well. And warnings this afternoon? Yep, so we've got um, that fire weather warning for the West Kimberley and Kimberley inland uh, fire weather districts. And in terms of strong wind warnings, uh, nothing uh, for today now. So for Wednesday, uh, we've got some strong winds up on the West Kimberley and Pilbara Coast East, and then along the coast from Albany uh, across to the Eucla. Thank you very much for that, Luke. It's 21 to 1 and no rain over 5 millimetres in Western Australia in the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning. The Esperance-based charity group Farmers Across Borders has been busy yet again, this time on a 2,000-kilometre round trip to Mekathara. Over the weekend, a convoy of six trucks delivered 650 bales of hay to Kumarina Station, where it's been pretty dry. The group's president, Sam Starsevich, says she's happy to help out WA's northern pastoralists. 
We had a few applications. I mean, a lot of the areas have had rain that we have delivered to, but there's just this pocket in there that just they just can't seem to take a break at the moment and get any rain. So, yeah, we decided, you know, we had all these bales still sitting in Esperance. There's no good sitting in Esperance. We may as well get them up there, and which is why we took so many up um, and we've just stockpiled them on one of the stations so they can all just access them when they need them. So is that the last run before harvest, Sam, do you think? More than likely, we might um, see how much we have got left and if they do need more of it, if there is anybody else out there that needs it, yeah, like we'd rather get rid of it now um, before harvest and before we all start thinking, you know, harvest-wise because we're going to run out of time otherwise. So, no, if anybody does need it, yeah, get on to us now so we can do it. Now, you mentioned the 650 bales of fodder, but, you know, usually on these hay runs, you deliver a few goodies to the station as well. What else was on board this time around? Yes, yeah, so this time on board, we had a uh, another local um, farmer business donate um, some goods. So we had um, a bit of a care package, just some household supplies and dog food, cat food, flea powder, worming tablets um, and also they, yeah, donated some meat to have at the station on Saturday night so the guys, you know, and guys and girls got together and had a bit of a barbecue and, you know, that's what we sort of do now, that social side of it as well. So they can let it all out if they need to. It's a friendly ear to listen to and, um, yeah, we've learnt that that's just as important as delivering the feed. I hope it was a great night over the weekend. That is Farmers Across Borders. Hey from WA President Sam Stasevich with Tara DeLangraft, 19 to 1. Some fruit and vegetable growers in WA's Carnarvon Horticulture District like the idea of this new agriculture visa, but they want more details on how much it's going to cost them. This is the new visa Federal Agriculture Minister David Littleproud was talking about yesterday, and he's confident it's going to be in place by next month. The visa will be open to skilled and unskilled workers from mostly Southeast Asian countries to work on Australian farms while giving them a pathway to permanent residency. Dan Kuzmasich is a Carnarvon capsicum and eggplant grower who sits on the board of Vegetables WA. He likes the idea but says a fair few stakeholders need to come to the party for this concept to work. Oh, absolutely. We certainly welcome any remedies that can help the industry and the, the water industry in the issue that we have now with the shortage of labour. Keeping in mind that there's still a lot of work to do in regards to this space, cost factor is always going to be a major obstacle. But yeah, we certainly we welcome it and look forward to further negotiations with the state government to refining the way we can um, uh, not simplify it, but actually improve the way we can source the workers in an efficient way to make it viable for not only um, the vegetables industry, but all industries, in the matter of fact. And Dan, you're a massive grower in the region and you sit on the board of Veggies WA. You obviously speak to a lot of growers around the region. Can you paint a picture of what it's sort of been like in the last 12 months in Carnarvon? Have the labour shortages been pretty crippling? Oh, yes, definitely. Give you an example, like, you know, back in the day when, the, you know, when there was heaps of backpackers around, you know, I was getting 15, 20 a day uh, rocking up to our farm having a having a few words and looking for work and it was it was great but now you're lucky to see one so it has it's it's but I'm hearing that statewide 
So there's a few around, but it, it certainly has had a big impact. Do you think then this new welcoming to sort of Southeast Asian workers is the long-term solution for the plot that's going on? It possibly is at the moment, unless we can um, we can reach out to our locals and put forward a good reason why they should be working on farm and, and incentives out there and provide safe working places. Um, it possibly could be, but um, there's always there's always a solution. We just got to find it and negate through it the the correct way. Carnarvon grower Dan Kuzmasich speaking to James Liveris. 16 to 1. One of the costing details that still needs to be sorted is who will pay for quarantining of any workers arriving in Australia from overseas. Uh, For example, at Bladen Village in the Northern Territory, which is looking like the most realistic option to get workers into WA to harvest this season's grain crop. That cost is something David Littleproud is handballing to the state governments. WA Agriculture Minister Alana McTiernan says she hopes to find a solution by the end of this week. Well, we've made it very clear to the Northern Territory that we uh, understand uh, that they would not uh, want to be out of pocket. So what we have got is our teams of people now uh, going out and looking at the availability and the cost of providing those services. So we're looking at um, uh, what the cost of the combined uh, catering, medical support, security would be for that facility because in all of our discussions with Northern Territory, which I will add weren't actually brokered by um, the, um, uh, the federal government, but certainly Northern Territory is being very helpful and uh, we're working with them. So we would hope that um, certainly by around Thursday this week, we should have a good idea of what the cost would be of providing all those services. And then we'll be talking to industry about uh, what their appetite is to take this up. Let's talk about this new program. So so harvest is coming up and it's coming up rather quickly. It, what's the best case scenario on the time frame then? If you, if you get that deal across the line with the Northern Territory, will the workers be ready for work in WA for this coming harvest? Well, that's that's the whole idea of the program and they won't be using this, um, I don't, don't think this... I, Australian agricultural visa is not the visa that they would be using. So that's a bit of a um, a, a by the by. But we would hope that's why we're really pushing to determine uh, by the end of uh, of this week or early next week, the idea that we would see if we could bring people in, uh, certainly before the end of September, um, having them ready to go out into the field uh, in October. So we un- absolutely understand the time criticalness, which is why we started some months ago encouraging the Commonwealth to look at... Um, at Christmas Island, but we are now progressing this idea. We've got a, and obviously part of the difficulty has been um, that until you know that you have a pathway, the industry can't go out and start recruiting. Okay, so what is, if this one doesn't get across the line, what's plan B, enable to get something, get some workers here for this coming harvest? Is there a plan B? 
there's a there's a few um, strings to the bow, but as we all know, in the middle of a pandemic, not every problem can be solved. We are, for example, with the Pacific Island workers, even though most of them do not haven't got a a background in grain harvesting, they are good workers, and many of we've actually bought some over um, just earlier this week to go to Murest to have a look at what grain harvesting might be. We've been trying to interest CBH and the farmers at looking at perhaps keeping these seasonal workers on. We also learn now that uh, it may well be that the seasonal workers that are here from Vanuatu won't be allowed to return home because of the situation in uh, the eastern states in terms of uh, of COVID that repatriation flights uh, might be stopped. So we will have that bank of workers. We're so just, also just, just funding... On, just, sorry, just on that bank of workers, the Pacific Islanders, so what would be the plan for them to drive headers or what would they do? Well, could um, there's not all, you know, there's uh, header chasing, there's bin chasing, uh, there's a range of other uh, perhaps less skilled tasks. But we're also, to- we're also told um, that quite a few of them actually have, uh, although they don't have harvester experience, as indeed do a lot of backpackers that come over don't have that harvester experience, but do learn. I mean, it's not ideal. We don't, uh, I think, Andrew, it's just important to understand there's no magic solution here. Can I just briefly say, so Thursday we should have news about uh, the idea of quarantining. In, 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 well, in, hopefully by the yeah. end of the week by, because by the we need week. to get uh, the prior yeah. and we need to get tests with the industry, yeah. their appetite okay. for funding this. And, and you're hopeful that will include Northern Europeans with experience that will come and help take the, the grain harvest off. Uh, what likelihood do you, you, you obviously, you know, you've been, you've been trying to get this uh, across the line for a while now. What likelihood that it will get across the line and these experienced operators will be here in time for harvest? Well, I'd, pr- I'd probably put it at around 60%. WA's Agriculture Minister Alana McTiernan speaking to Andrew Collins. 10 to 1 here on the Country Hour. So at the moment there is all this talk about bringing in more people from overseas to try and solve Australia's labour shortage problems. And those successful applicants for the proposed new ag visa would then be eligible for permanent residency. But it's been estimated there are hundreds of working holidaymakers who are already in Australia. Uh, Some of them are stuck here due to the pandemic and some would like to remain here. French backpacker Jill Cordier is one of them. She's worked in the wine industry in WA's Margaret River region and also in the hospitality sector. And she says she's finding it very difficult getting the okay to stay longer. Going back to France right now, it's like it's not a good idea. Like uh, they still have a lot of COVID cases over there and the job industry is really bad. Like even though I'm working in the wine and we still make wine over there, it's really hard to find a job and now I feel Australia is my home, so I want to stay like as long as possible. Yeah. How are you finding the process of trying to stay longer in Australia and eventually becoming a permanent resident? It's pretty hard. Like I will, maybe I thought first maybe that it's going to be easier because of COVID and Australia needs like workers and especially in the in the in the agriculture and hospitality. But actually, it's not really easy and it's a long process and it takes like a couple of years. And I need to find a, an employer, and it's, it's not easy, that's for sure. 
Is there a lot of demand for workers at the moment? Do you find it easy to get a job? Yeah, finding a job at the moment it's really easy, like especially in hospitality and again like in uh, in agriculture. But for like long term and to find a sponsorship, it's it's still hard at the moment. So I hope Australia will be like um, will allow us to stay for a long period of time in Australia for sure. Will you be going back to do more farm work to stay longer? Yeah, yeah. You know, the wine industry is part of the of the agriculture industry, especially if you work in vineyard. And I will definitely go back to Western Australia and be part of the of the wine industry down there. Yeah. Now you were saying before how it's difficult to find an employer, maybe to sponsor you. Do you think there could be some help from the government to help you match with an employer? Yeah, I hope Australia will understand at some point that we need some help to stay here. We all, like backpackers, want to to stay and be part of the um, of the agriculture industry and hospitality and tourism industry. So, for sure, like we we hope like Australia will will help us to stay for a long period of time and help to find like employers for a long period of time. And yeah. And the wine industry, it's uh, really one that needs a lot of staff too, doesn't it? Are they having trouble over there filling jobs? Uh, let's say in vineyards, yes. Like they still struggle to find backpackers to work in vineyards, but in the, in the wineries, it's not that hard because Australians um, they can fulfil the position in in wineries. So that's not a big deal. But for the vineyards, yeah, definitely, yeah. For pickers and yeah, all kind of job you can find in in vineyards for sure. Seven to one. That's Jill Cordier, a backpacker living in Bowen in northern Queensland, speaking to Tom Major. You can read her full story. It's online for you now. Search backpacker work ABC. Seven to one. Federal Agriculture Minister David Littleproud says he is fully aware backpackers like Jill Cordier would like to stay in Australia for longer but he doesn't think they will solve our labour shortage problems. And that is why he is pushing ahead with a new ag visa. Well, there's only under 30,000 working holiday makers left in the country at the moment and there's over 2,000 a month that are leaving, that are going home. We've already extended the opportunity for them to stay if they work in agriculture. Uh, So we are looking at it from every angle as well as the Pacific schemes that we have extended and trying to expand. And this is a longer-term structural change to agricultural workforce in this country, one that we haven't seen before, one that will set us up into the future post-pandemic, but also give us the opportunity in the coming months to bring uh, other workers in, skilled, semi-skilled uh, and unskilled, from particularly the southeast and Asian countries that are close to us. I imagine you can understand the expense and difficulty of importing new workers to Australia under the proposed ag visa, particularly for smaller and medium-sized farmers. Does the government accept that that's beyond the means of many of those employers? Well, those are arrangements that the states have worked with industry on. Under the National Cabinet arrangements, the states have wanted to handle agricultural worker quarantine. They've gone into partnership with industry in how they would do that. One state, in fact, now are trying to do in-country quarantine in Vanuatu. Uh, So it comes back to the Chief Health Officer and the Premier of every state to determine the way in which they'll quarantine workers. Uh, And that has been and will be the way that it continues on. And we encourage them to continue to be proactive in trying to find solutions to bring more in. Could workers who have already completed, say, two or two and a half years of farm work under the Working Holidaymaker Visa or indeed the Pacific Island Labor Mobility Scheme, 
Is there a possibility they can count that towards a permanent residency application under the new ag visa where you've actually come out and said that three years after arriving in Australia, those ag workers may be eligible for permanency? So those are the arrangements we're going to look at now, particularly the, the countries that were able to get signed up to the new ag visa. We are trying to work through any way we can to keep those that are here. And if they are already in the agricultural system or want to be, then that is a way that we are trying to, to expedite that. And that will depend on the bilaterals. And that's why we're trying to get as many bilaterals done as quickly as we can, get as many countries signed up as quickly as we can to keep as many people here. And that may be a transition pathway. And that's the sort of work that we're now doing with industry to finalise to make sure that we get those settings right. With regard to Pacific Islanders, I know some around the Tully banana farms have been in Australia for three plus years. They've got girlfriends, mates here, they play rugby league in the local teams. Just how important is it to give them a chance to become Australians? Well, under the under the Pacific and Seasonal Worker Programs, obviously they come from a different background in that we are trying to maintain that uh, intellectual property and, and those being able to continue to contribute to the development of the Pacific, whereas the ag visa is more around skilled and semi-skilled coming from nations that are uh, further developed. And so we are working through with those Pacific nations around what that social construct would look like. We have to be careful not to make policy settings here that would be detrimental to the Pacific family. But those discussions are things that we will have to have, but we want to do that carefully and with the Pacific governments in mind. You mentioned 2,000 working holidaymakers leaving the country a month in Australia, now less than 30,000 remaining. Just how is the sense of urgency among the government to retain those skilled or semi-skilled workers who have been working in agriculture and want to continue before their visas run out and they're lost to Australian farms? Well, we've been trying to incentivise them. And in fact, of the programs we've put to incentivise them to stay, uh, there's been around 4,500 that have taken up that program. 75% of those are, in fact, working holiday makers. But ultimately, people just want to go home. They're a long way away from home, some of these people. And at, at the end of the day, some of them want to be back with their family. Uh, and when we have lockdowns here in some states, obviously, the amount of freedoms that they once enjoyed are no longer there. So incentives go so far but ultimately people do want to go home and be with their families. Federal Minister for Agriculture David Littleproud with Tom Major. Two minutes to one to the markets and at today's sheep and lamb sale numbers were up 1,400 on last week. The final tally was 7,559. Tracy Kilner's at Mushay now. Tracy, can you run through the prices? A large run of new season lambs were presented this week with the best selling to 817 cents a kilo carcass weight. The old season lambs were still in demand with rates up 5 to $10 on the heavier weights. Mutton remained firm with only heavy rams seeing a gain with higher demand. Heavy, heavy old season lambs sold to $210 while the best ewes carrying a fleece topped the sale at $241 a head. In the lamb market, the under 12 kilo carcass weight lamb sold from $70 to $72. Air freight range made from $90 to $120, while heavier under 18 kilo carcass weight lambs sold for $115 to $154. Trade weight lambs returned from $130 up to $186, while heavier lambs made from $150 to $210 a head. 
A large yarding of ram lamb sold from $100 for lightweights up to 210 for the best. The ewe mutton yarding saw light store ewes sell from 77 to 127 with a fleece. Medium weight store ewes returned 99 to 177 with a full fleece. Prime trade weight ewes dressing between 25 to 30 kilos sold from 160 to $220 with a fleece and the heavy 30 kilo carcass weight plus line sold at $187 to $241 a head. Best heavy weathers returned $208 and mature rams sold from $65 to $210 depending on weights. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you for that Tracy. Anne in the Midwest says the ag visa is great as a short term measure but where's the plan for the longer term for ag? The industry has ignored agricultural education for a long time while employers in ag have been preoccupied with growing their businesses that the ag ed sector is in real trouble with funding cuts dire staff shortages and falling enrolments and this keep procrastinating and it won't matter harvest will start in about eight weeks news time one o'clock you've been listening to an abc podcast Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.